The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Mike Schrager, has been involved in media relations for over 30 years and joins us today on the vision of enrichment.com and the nobility of the human spirit. My guest today has been involved in media relations for some 30 years, developing relationships and a profound vision through enrichment.com. His deep study of the human position and spirituality has created entrepreneurial growth, with the importance placed on the human potential in a constantly evolving and changing world. Mike, welcome to you today. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, David. And you, Mike. Thank you. Um, I am fascinated, and as we develop this relationship, I'm seeing so much vision, and uh, what a wonderful mission that you have, uh, and certainly uh, great wisdom in uh, your vehicle, enrichment.com. And as you know, what I would like to do is return back uh, to the early years to, to chart the history of this and to see where you came from and uh, where you are today and why you are here today. Could I possibly start off with the early days, with, with your childhood, and, and so our listeners know where, uh, where you came from? Yes, yeah. uh, sure, David. Uh, well, I was born to German-Jewish parents, uh, Owen Schwager and Sonny Schwager. Uh, in Germany, my dad was known as Oscar, and my mother, Sophie, when they came to America, they, they Americanized it, uh, or shall I say anglicized it. Uh, and uh, they were born in Dortmund, Germany. Uh, Dortmund is in the Ruhr Valley of Germany. Uh, it is a beer town. Perhaps you've heard of Dortmund, a beer, uh, and an industrial town. Uh, my mom was born to um, wealthy parents. Uh, her father, Mendel, uh, was uh, a very successful uh, manufacturer. And, uh, and uh, her mom was a philanthropist in Dortmund and uh, who gave uh, not only to Jewish families, but to Christian families as well. She was, I knew her. She was a very wonderful, sweet, kind person. And um, my father was born to very, very poor uh, uh, parents, uh, uh, Sam, Samuel, and uh, Henny, on the, shall we say, the opposite sides of the track uh, in the poor section of Dortmund. And they struggled very hard uh, all their lives. Uh, and sadly, uh, um, sadly, uh, after uh, uh, 1939, uh, uh, in the early 40s, uh, devastation occurred uh, for the Jewish uh, people of Dortmund, and uh, they were transported uh, to the camps. Um, in the case of my grandmother, my father's uh, mother, Henny, uh, she was, uh, the word came back to my father that she had been uh, bayoneted in the street by the Nazis. As she was trying to save her children, uh, the truck had come to uh, 
transport them to the railroad yard. And uh, she refused to get on the truck. She tried to save her children. She was uh, bayoneted and killed, which was a source of uh, great, great pain for my father all his life. Henny was a wonderful woman, a uh, family of six children, um, who always managed to put food on the table, even though there wasn't always enough money to do so. She just knew how to stretch the, the Deutsche Mark, shall we say. And uh, uh, my father uh, escaped. He, uh, he and his brother Emil uh, escaped and uh, ran through, actually, the Belgian forest being chased by uh, the SS and, and German shepherd dogs. Somehow they landed in Rotterdam, in Amsterdam, and uh, got onto a ship. Uh, not not uh, both of them, uh, my father. A Emil went in a different direction to Belgium. And um, he, my dad came to America, uh, came penniless uh, into New York Harbor, uh, slept as a hobo in Central Park for some time, didn't speak any English at all, uh, until the Salvation Army. He found out about a halfway house on 10th Avenue and 23rd Street, and the Salvation Army uh, gave him a home uh, until and, and actually landed him, I believe, his first job in the garment uh, center until he could get on his own feet. He was always grateful to the Salvation Army for that. How old was he at this point, Mike? Well, he would have been uh, in his uh, uh, very late teens or early 20s. And uh, the, uh, the, the upshot of that was, was that... Um, Word had come to him that his mother and uh, uh, four brothers and sisters uh, had been uh, murdered. Uh, his mother immediately and his uh, brothers and sisters uh, in Treblinka. And um, uh, there were two, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, there were three. Three had been uh, killed, and then there were two who had survived. His brother Emil... <clears throat> And his sister, uh, Rosa, who uh, had actually left earlier, had gone to Palestine, then Palestine, and had become what is called in Hebrew a halotzit, a pioneer. And she was one of the founders of what is today one of the largest kibbutzim, uh, kibbutz uh, in Israel, just south of Haifa, called Yagur. It's actually even larger than a kibbutz, uh, it's a Meshek Yagur. Uh, but, um, uh, so, uh, my dad... Uh, Having heard the tragic news, um, uh, wanted to fight, and uh, uh, he eventually uh, became a soldier in uh, in World War II in Darby's First Ranger Battalion, and actually was a translator, German to English, uh, to uh, Colonel Darby. Uh, Darby's Ranger First Ranger Battalion was very famous, and my dad was in the invasion of Anzio. He was in the first wave assault, uh, uh, in, uh, and came onto the beachhead of uh, Anzio, and. Uh, uh, many, many of his buddies were killed in that first wave assault, as you can imagine. That that is the the first wave assaults are the most horrific in battle. And uh, but he uh, he survived. And he he always said to me, "I don't know how I survived. I I literally felt the bullets whizzing by my ears, and saw my buddies falling to the ground." And and as he said that, he cried for his buddies. I once videotaped a conversation with him where we talked about uh, his. Uh, his early years uh, uh, in Germany and Dortmund, and then the uh, the Nazi coming Nazis coming in, and then uh, the uh, the the murder of his mother and brothers and sisters, and then uh, his participation as a soldier in Anzio and uh, in Sicily, and uh, 
as as a ranger and uh, and he cried both for uh his mother and brothers and sisters but also for his buddies um he had been through two horrific uh historical episodes and uh so uh, th- when he uh, and he married my mother who actually was a cousin of his <laughs> in Dortmund <laughs> they were distant cousins and uh, they met not, uh, he never really knew her much. He knew her a little when they were boy and girl uh, in, uh, in Dortmund because he knew my mother's mother. She was a philanthropist, and she had given to the community in which my father had lived. And, uh, and he, he had spotted my mom once or twice as a girl. But when, when he was in New York, and, uh, and my mom had, uh, by the way, uh, her family, she and her family, had bought their way out of Dortmund, and uh, they were wealthy, and uh, and uh, fortunately they, their lives were spared. And uh, but he had met my mother uh, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, they married, and I was their firstborn. Now, did uh, did your father ever return to Dortmund again? Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> because he and because, my mom... because from what I understand, sorry to interrupt, Mike, but from what I understand. From my history, Dortmund was actually one of those cities that was bombed terribly during the war because of its industrial wealth. That is correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, I visited Dortmund, <laughs> and uh, and when I visited Dortmund, I could still see some of the bombing, and it wasn't completely reconstructed. But they did visit Dortmund in the 1970s, and uh, they were honored by the mayor and. Um, uh, they uh, looked for their um, uh, the buildings in which they lived, and those buildings were gone, but uh, there were some buildings still standing, and it was a very nostalgic and emotional and tear-jerking experience for them, of course. Now, he obviously was German by descent. That would be, is that correct? Uh, well, my father was born in Germany, but uh, he, uh, his uh, lineage goes back to uh, Poland and Russia. And uh, my mom's lineage goes back to uh, Poland and what was then uh, Austria-Hungary. She was born, they were both born in Germany, though. But interestingly, their passports didn't say German, it said Jewish. Did uh, your father ever have any aspirations of returning to Germany one day? Never, no. Um, years later, he actually worked as a sales executive for Balsen, uh, that's a German cookie company, uh, which uh, distributes in this country, and he worked for them here in this country. And, and I asked him, how do you feel about that, Dad? And he said, well, first of all, son, um, these are not the perpetrators of what happened. These are the children and grandchildren of uh, perhaps some people who uh, were in the Nazi party. Uh, although practically uh, anyone who, of some standing was a member of the Nazi party. But he, he also said uh, they, they were not uh, responsible. And besides that, we must forgive. We must forgive and we must release our resentment. I thought that was a very courageous statement for someone who had gone through what he had gone through. Did he, uh, when you were a child, shelter you from these issues, shelter you from that life? Was it yes. late, later in life that he began to talk to you? Yes, yes. When, as, as my, my, myself and my two sisters, when we sat around the breakfast table or the dinner table, he would talk about that time, but only the happy times. Uh, when, when he was a child, and uh, but it was much, much later uh, when he was older, and uh, uh, it was.
was actually in a town in uh, the Catskills of New York called Fleischmann's. Fleischmann's used to be inhabited by, uh, the term was Yekes, <laughs> German Jews, who came to, for the summertime uh, to vacation. So it was, uh, uh, to be in Fleischmann's New York, which is, by the way, north of, not far from Woodstock, but north of Woodstock, to be in Fleischmann's New York at that time in the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, was uh, like being in a town in Germany. <laughs> it was more German than German. <laughs> and everyone spoke German, and everyone was very courteous and polite, and, and men tipped their hats. And uh, and uh, so they, they used to take a cottage in Fleischmann's, and then one day on... On the patio, the sun was coming down. I was sitting uh, with him, and I said to him, "You never talked about your mother to me. Can you tell me about her?" And with that, uh, there was a huge wail, and uh, a huge wail, as if all that he had suppressed had suddenly come out in one gigantic leap and emotional leap, and. Uh, and he cried for about 10, 15 minutes before he could actually talk. And uh, and uh, he said to me, uh, I'm responsible. I said to him, you're responsible for what, Dad? For my mother's death. How could you say that? Because I wasn't there to save her. But how could you be there to save her, Dad? You, you, were, you were in New York. You were trying to make a living. As a matter of fact, it was his hope that he could make enough money to bring his family to New York from Germany. And he said, uh, and I said, that is not rational, Pop. That is not rational. He said, I know, but this is how I feel. He carried that guilt with him. And uh, uh, and I do believe that that uh, cathartic release uh, on, on that uh, evening was uh, very helpful for him. And, and, and he spoke about his mother, and he spoke about his father, and he spoke about his brothers and sisters. And uh, and uh, and uh, it, it was a very good moment for him, uh, cathartically speaking. That is clearly uh, an indicative uh, uh, position that he's taking of his faith in you as his son. You must have been extremely close. I'm interested in your biography in a statement that you did make. Um, I remember as a child watching a movie starring actor Bob Cummings. His character made a statement I never forgot, never mistake kindness for weakness. He could have been speaking of my dad. Um, Was he an extremely kind man, notwithstanding everything that he had gone through, everything that he he saw that the uh, uh, the humanity was capable of doing? Yeah. (coughs) Interestingly, you know, uh, when we are born, David, we all, our natural natural, uh, proclivities and our, and our, uh, natural personalities, uh, that which we haven't been taught, um, uh, sort of shines uh, more than later, uh, unless we're lucky and, uh, and uh, that continues. Um, he was always, uh, in his essence, he was a happy person, interestingly. He, he loved to joke, and he, and he loved to uh, have fun. Um, so this this encounter with this tragedy, this huge tragedy in his life, which uh, really deeply impressed upon him, and I think sometimes it's worse when people are, are sensitive, and he had a sensitive side. Um, this uh, the, this uh, this sadness, nonetheless, crept into the good, cheerful disposition that he uh, had by nature, and uh, so I, I saw the complexity of it, uh, and. Uh, 
but usually the, the sadness crept in when he was with himself and uh, and uh, I, I sometimes came up to him uh, and asked him if he was okay and I knew that he was uh, reflecting and uh, and recalling you know his experience and, and his great longing and wish that he could have saved his mom. Now, how, how was that pain transmitted to you consciously or subconsciously, Mike, in, in your life? You clearly have been very victorious in, in what you have achieved yourself, but uh, was that something that you had to take on yourself? I think that word take on is a very good word, and it's a very interesting word. I do think that especially when we're sensitive as kids and uh, that we 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 do take on energetically whatever is being transmitted by our parents whether consciously or unconsciously and uh, i never really understood uh, for a time in my uh, teenagehood why sometimes i would feel guilty about things when there was no need to feel guilty years later when i went into jungian analysis i i, I discovered that uh, some of that perhaps much of that uh, stemmed from the pain of uh, my parents uh, and especially my dad, um, and uh, and uh, so I unraveled it uh, in, in that course uh, of uh, time that I was in analysis, and uh, and I was able to more or less release it. Um, some of it still lingers, and I think it lingers for all of us who have had been deeply impressed energetically with uh, the pain of their parents. Uh, it's, it never totally goes away, but at least we could, we are conscious enough to recognize it when it creeps in and then we can release it. Now, as you moved into adulthood, uh, you, you uh, went through education and you uh, dived into media relations, into business. H- how were those impressions uh, taken by you in the way that you were impressed upon by the world around you? Mm-hmm. Well, first take a step back um, I discovered about myself uh, when I was quite young even in public school that um, I was uh, a natural communicator I especially loved to write and uh, and that I was always very interested in um, causes humanitarian causes that would help people uh, in need uh, I, I remember very clearly, I must have been five years old, <laughs> and I saw something on the television about uh, Africa and about uh, hunger in Africa. And I, uh, I uh, saw uh, uh, an address, and I was able at five years old to write the address down. And then I went into the kitchen, David, <laughs> and I removed all the cans, the f- uh, cans of food, and uh, from the the cabinet, and there were uh, they had just stocked my mom and dad had just stocked the kitchen cabinets, and there must have been a hundred cans there, and uh, there there was a box, and I started to put them in the box, and my fa- father came in and, and said, "What are you doing?" I, I said, "Oh, th- this is for the poor people in Africa." So I, I uh, you know I, I had my my heart had a, a disposition towards um, helping those in need from a very very early age. And uh, uh, when I uh, uh, went into communications, uh, and by the way, I should say I was going to become a rabbi <laughs> after college, thinking that that was to be my mission, um, uh, because I had a profound experience um, 
in my junior year abroad, where I went to the University of Vienna, but I took a side trip to Israel and had a and visited the Western Wall. Um, and it was there that I felt a deep spiritual um, calling to serve God. Um, and I made a commitment to serve God in some way at that wall. That was followed by uh, an attempt to become a rabbi, but I realized in seminary that that was not my vocation. But it had to do with communications, either spiritual or humanitarian. I, I had figured that much out. <laughs> and um, uh, so uh, I, I, uh, after that, I, uh, I landed a job at CBS, at CBS News and CBS Corporate, but um, something occurred at CBS where um, I decided I actually was invited by a pub, large public relations firm to join them. And it was from there that I developed a lot of experience in uh, media relations, public relations, but then decided to form my own agency, uh, which I did. My interest was uh, veered towards uh, nonprofits and humanitarian organizations. Now, can I just can I just take you back there for one second? Was there something about the news business that you did not like? It wasn't meaningful to me. Um, the gathering of news was not meaningful to me, and I also had a problem with how decisions were made in the newsroom as to what was news. Now, of course, in journalism school, and I never went to journalism school, by the way, but in journalism school, they do teach you, you know, that uh, what, what is hard news and what is soft news, and that, um, and that it's the hard news that uh, uh, takes priority. Hard news being um, all the awful things in the world. Um, I, I don't think I need to go into descriptions, but, and, and, and I disagreed fundamentally in, in my own being with the decision to call news hard news uh, in terms of prioritizing it in that way. Because, because it's a personal, subjective decision on the part of whoever is dispensing that information? It absolutely is, David. It absolutely is, no matter what they tell you. But uh, so, um, uh, now, now, of course, this was germinating within me, but I knew in my gut that this is not what I wanted to do. And, uh, and, and going into public relations um, was something that, uh, where at least I could learn uh, certain skills uh, in communications as to how to present stories to editors, which I did, and, and producers. And, uh, but it wasn't until I had my own agency that I, I followed that inner calling to, um, to represent uh, uh, more nonprofits and humanitarian organizations. Of course, I also represented companies, but I was very interested in companies that were doing something that was cause-related, so that would bring us back to nonprofit and humanitarian work. Um, but it was um, at around that time also that um, uh, I uh, was exploring a great... When I had my own agency it was a, uh, in New York, it was around that time that I was doing a lot of exploring, spiritually speaking. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the uh, areas that I explored was something called science of mind. Uh, and in science of mind, it just clicked for me that, of course, thoughts are things, and uh, we can choose our thoughts, and w there are techniques uh, to be used to um, to uh, manifest things in our life, and uh, based on our own intention. 
and uh, that uh, otherwise um, it is uh, we're in a field in the world where so much is happening and uh, we, 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 we are not uh, if we don't empower ourselves to create our own lives or co-create our own lives then we're we, we succumb to um, so many energies and conflicting energies and complexities that uh, really are, are not helpful so uh, it was it was uh, with that that I became even more intent in practicing science of mind and in, in doing daily treatments that I became much clearer about my own mission, uh, which I felt was um, to communicate the work of worthy causes, but also to really widen the field and uh, and uh, uh, represent. Um, Many points of views, all of which had a spiritual, um, uh, benign, and uh, positive uh, point of view. And th- and that work is within the business sector. It's not just on a personal level. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm I'm basically <laughs> talking about integrating um, that work with my business, and uh, because the business is us, it's a reflection of who we are. Now, let me ask you this. Um, and I'm slightly jumping out of context, and I'm, right. I'm slightly, slightly jumping ahead, but why not? In all of that that you have stated, uh, you, would you agree with me that we must have at this stage a joint sense of consciousness, a joint sense of wisdom, common sense, uh, thoughts that work <laughs> together in, in yes. parallel at this yes, stage? David. I meant to share with you, uh, uh, if I might, uh, a boyhood experience I had. It, it was it, it happened in a moment, and I think I was eight years old when I had it. I was looking. I was living in Bayside, New York, in Queens, and I was looking out the window. And you know, uh, there's a book called "Imagination Is Reality." Um, I do believe that imagination is um, a vehicle to manifest reality. Um, I remember looking out the window and and in my imagination, but actually visually seeing it in the sky, um, um, boys and girls holding hands together in a circle. And in the middle of the circle was the planet Earth. It was very profound. And I remember that experience very clearly to this day, and I believe that it was a calling of my soul. Um, not just my soul, but uh, a calling of the uh, of higher mind, and uh, uh, and I and I could not put it into words at that time. But I understand now that one of my missions in the world is to be one of the many people on this planet to help uh, bring forward the unification process. Now, is that is that also uh, talking to the sense and the need of finding a common ground? Totally. Um, it was years later, I think I shared this with you uh, uh, some weeks ago, it was years later when I, was, when I had my uh, PR office in uh, Manhattan in Soho, and I lived in Soho, it was only a few blocks, uh, the walk was only a few blocks away from my home to the office, that I was walking to, to the office one morning, looking up at the sky, and uh, all of a sudden having an extraordinary experience which I felt and still feel came from higher mind, that it wasn't coming from me, but coming through me. And it was, there, were, there were two kinds of messages that were um, 
coming uh, and it, it it was more imagery than words, but I got them two messages. And the first message was, we're in a time of convergence, and it's very necessary to for the opposites to dialogue with each other in order to find common ground. Can you define op- Can you define opposites for me in that the context? The opposites being. Uh, the genders, the cultures, the religions, the ethnicities. Um, that, in, that includes technology as well in that statement? Well, uh, it's interesting because it, it, in, the, uh, in, in that moment where uh, what I believe higher, was higher mind coming through, I didn't hear the word technology that was not impressed. But right after it was over, I realized this is going to happen at least in part through the new emerging technologies. Um, And the other piece to the message was human potential. It is time now for individuals to fulfill their missions in life and for for society to allow them to do so. So those were the two messages. But common ground, the unification process has to, at least in part, do with communications, people talking to and understanding each other, particularly people of opposite points of view. Uh, and, 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 and looking for and finding common ground. I will tell you one very interesting experience I had. Uh, my, I, I, Louise Hay was a client of mine for six years, uh, you know, the author of You Can Heal Your Life. And uh, I attended one of her workshops. She invited me to attend the workshop. In the workshop, she did something interesting. For all I know, if she's still giving workshops, maybe she's doing the same thing. There were perhaps 500 people in, in the audience in her workshop. And she said to the people, <clears throat> look for, you've, you've been sitting here now for a couple of hours, and you, you've, you've kind of uh, made an assessment of some of the people around you on some level. Look for someone that turns you off, someone that you don't like. I never forget, forgot this, David. <laughs> and uh, so everybody started to scramble and look for someone that they disliked. <laughs> and she said, now, um, take your chairs and sit opposite each other and start to talk to each other. The upshot of that experience was, and I found a, a woman that just didn't appeal to me uh, on any level. And, uh, and, and, and she said, I want, we want, I want you to now take turns in sharing your story, but it's very important that you listen to the other person. Uh, the, the upshot of the experience was we had so much in common, it was unbelievable. And uh, so uh, I, I, I really do believe uh, from, from the moment I had that quote-unquote vision to, to now, and I always will believe, that um, there is more that unites us than separates us, but we must communicate. Now, let me uh, make a statement here, therefore. Enrichment.com is stating very clearly that advocacy uh, for, for freedom in humanity um, and it's talking about that convergence of humanity through that dialogue, I'm assuming. Now, can you tell me how you take that a, a stage further? I'm always making this statement, industry is people as much as people are industry. Are there any, are there any companies at the moment that we could look at that really elaborates on that, really proves that potential? Could it be the Disney or somebody like that who's actually using this in the business area? Well, uh, David, um, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, I, I, I really haven't looked for companies that um, have humanized themselves to the degree that they have balanced uh, their um, 
their commerce with their um, with their humanity. Uh, you and I both know someone uh, who you have interviewed, uh, Cleve Stevens, who helps companies do just that. But um, uh, uh, I, I think that they are out there. I am sure that there is a list, um, but I am also sure that they are still in the minority, but that this new paradigm is growing. And, uh, and, uh, and, and as you well know, when a new paradigm comes in, the forces of resistance are sometimes huge and sometimes feel overwhelming. But that happens to be a sign that we're onto something, and there usually is a breakthrough. Now, when we talk about technology, and technology is used a lot today, as much as the word innovation, um, sustainability, all these words being used, um, is it possibly that technology, as we understand it, despite the fact that it's a great tool, it can be very damaging if it's not used with wisdom and compassion? There was once a, a motion picture, I wonder if you saw it, on the life of Thomas Edison. It starred Spencer Tracy. Did you see that movie? I think I saw it a long time ago. I think ago. it was from the 30s or early 40s. It was a wonderful movie, and, uh, and Spencer Tracy, of course, was one of the great actors. He was one of my favorites of all time. But he played Thomas Edison, and um, and, he, and in the movie, uh, it portrays him and uh, and uh, and his discovery uh, of the uh, light bulb, and uh, and uh, which was a, a huge struggle until it finally occurred. But at the end of the movie, he was given a testimonial, uh, and everybody was in their black tie. And uh, he got up in front of the microphone, and one of the things he said impressed me hugely. I'm hoping Thomas Edison actually said that in real life, <laughs> but I'm not sure. I suspect he did. And what he said was, um, now this would, this would have been in the 1920s, okay, the, the era in which that point of time was portrayed, towards the end of Edison's life. And what he said to this uh, gathering was, um, invention... And technology is a wonderful thing. But there is a great danger looming ahead. I'm paraphrasing, of course. There's a great danger looming ahead for us, and that is, is that we will lose our humanity, and technology will take over, and the human heart will recede. That we must always struggle and fight to not allow this to happen in order for humanity to be saved. Isn't that a great thing that he said? Thomas Edison. What does that say about technology today? Well, it says it says in general uh, that uh, without the heart, without without the without the in, the 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 human heart in whatever our activities are, we're lost. And and in the technological arena, to become so obsessed with technology that we have devalued and deprioritized the human heart, our compassion, our feelings, um, it's going to be absolute disaster. And, that's, course, and, that, and that, that's clearly been the case in the last 20 years, would you not Well, of, would you of not course agree? we know that uh, this is true, but it, it teeter-totters because there is always the potential for the integration of both heart and technology. And, and, and that has the potential to be an extraordinarily wonderful thing, particularly as technology becomes a vehicle for the human heart for human interaction, human exchange, human dialogue and communication. And that's what I got when I had that, that moment of vision that led to uh, the, uh, 
business plan that was actually the enrichment channel. The, before enrichment.com, there was a business plan for a spiritual television channel called the enrichment channel. And, and, and that, that is really the intent, you know, to advance the human heart, to advance our compassion, to, to advance our dialogue and interaction, to find our common ground, and to do it in part through technology. And, and it is doable. It is possible. It's happening in some arenas today. Um, and, 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 and that's what uh, I hope that I can be one of the many who will help advance that. And you are one of the uh, people, David, who are doing exactly that. When you talked earlier to the need to help others, to uh, give away much of your own materialism to help people wherever they are in, in the world that, that are uh, right. in, impoverished, uh, is that something that has to be utilized in the mindsets of leaders in industry? I know that you you have done much counseling work with, with people in, in business before. Uh, do, how do they have to change their mindset? Um, they, they are probably, wouldn't you agree, one of the most important groups of people at this stage in society, uh, those people in, in the, the, the boardrooms that have so much control over the people under them, have so much control over the consumers. Do they have to actually now uh, transfer the need for profitability in, into viability and into uh, uh, frugality and, and giving and uh, becoming more um, uh, proactive in helping others? Well, I think there are many who are already doing that. Um, and I think there are many more who have the potential to go there. Um, l- let me, if I might, not, not uh, evade your question, but come back to it in just a second by also saying that um, it's my profound feeling um, that reverence for life has to be the primary value. It is out of reverence for life that upholding the value of the development of human potential emerges. And um, to see the vastness and the immensity in terms of potentiality of human beings by recognizing that we are extraordinary. Uh, I, I also deeply, deeply believe that reverence for life must extend to the animal kingdom. We are doing horrible things, making horrible offenses to animals, shelter animals, farm animals, and uh, animals in the wild. Um, it, it, it is a disaster, and, it, it ref- and, and until we reflect our and and our humanity in dealing with the animal kingdom um, we will never heal whatever wounding and gaps exist in our relationship with each other but in terms of um, those people who had boardrooms uh, the CEOs the chairman they're human beings you know they some of them are religious um, most of them have some clear sense of values. Um, I think, in part, where the shift needs to occur, to, needs to occur, is um, to move away from greed, which is um, a, a very uh, evil force um, uh, in the world. Um, Gordon Gecko aside, <laughs> and um, and uh, to. Uh, uh, to become, to recognize, as uh, our mutual friend uh, Cleve Stevens uh, teaches, uh, that um, there is much to be gained by uh, a, uh, first uh, 
revaluing the purpose and mission of a of a uh, of an organization uh, from greed and from profits as the singular end game to the affirmation and embracing of human beings and their vast potential and by really affirming reverence for life, reverence for all life. Um, this is a process, and I also think that with human beings, this is a journey that people take. Can we help them catalytically, those who are not quite yet there, move to the other side uh, of the paradigm? Uh, uh, I think that's part of our mission as communicators, whether we're in broadcasting or um, uh, on the internet, in media, or as writers, um, to, to help move that along. Um, I, I do believe, as Wittgenstein said, that words are pictures, and pictures can hold us captive, but, but words can also free us, and images can also free us. And I do believe that um, since we are all, and speaking now of the human community, um, we, we, we all have hearts. Uh, the question is how what has to happen for the heart to be to kindle into um, greater compassion greater sense of uh, unity with those around us and feeling for those who are less fortunate than ourselves i i uh, i i think the the road that i was going down here mike was that the irony of life especially today is that there are leaders and there are followers and the leaders are those in the boardrooms and they have people below them uh, all the way down the scale they have the people who buy from them and they look to them for guidance uh, they are have to set the example and I'm I am trying to figure out because the times have gone by now to be critical their times now are for solutions to figure out how those mindsets can change so the profitability and the stakeholders are not at the top of the uh, agenda. Uh, it is about the people and how they feel and how they live now that have to be considered. Well, but I, 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 I do think and I do feel that um, when you speak of leaders, they're not just the ones in the boardroom. Um, uh, leaders, uh, I, I look at the word, word, word leaders um, in a broader sense, such as opinion leaders, such as catalysts. Um, those in the media who have a profound uh, impact upon uh, their various publics, including those in the boardroom, um, and uh, and writers, and uh, so there are many different kinds of leaders, and not just those in the boardroom. I, I think if we rely exclusively upon those in the boardroom to uh, set the track, uh, that we're going to have a problem. Uh, but I do also feel that they can be impacted upon. I know this from my years in public relations, that um, that um, points of view and um, values can penetrate uh, through the media to various publics, and that opinions and attitudes can change. Uh, I just know this from my uh, long experience in in public media relations. And so um, I, I, I look at the word David leaders in a wider sense, in a wider field, and I include leaders uh, in communications and in media. And, and I do believe that um, you are one of those people, and you will continue to be one of those people, and you will have a major impact. And as you interview uh, other opinion leaders, those who, are, who, 
are potentially or are already in the other paradigm, their power to persuade is great in terms of those who are listening to that interview. Um, uh, I do hear you always talk about we need to find solutions. I do believe that one area of solution is literally the communication and the um, the presentation of ideas and values that energetically help shift the, the other energy and help move it along. So I, I, I do believe that uh, that that is um, one uh, way to to ultimately affect decisions in the boardroom. Um, and, uh, and and there are many other uh, you know ways to do that. But uh, and also I do feel that um, m- many of the CEOs who are sitting in, uh, in uh, as heads of companies today have already made shifts, or they are on the verge of shifting. Now, is the percentage a hundred percent? No. Is it fifty percent? No. Uh, but um, there will be a turning point. There will be a moment where um, things will shift significantly and then uh, catapult other uh, CEOs or bring in CEOs that will be uh, in this new paradigm. Uh, It's a process, and I believe in creative process, and, uh, and I believe we must have faith and we must continue our work. Let me ask you, though, about that very important word, communication. It's not just a intellectual communication is it it's an intellectual communication combined with a practical communication with a simplistic communication uh, with uh, a spiritual communication there's so many different types well, of communication well i would add the word emotional i mean the the, the the kind of communication that really impacts other human beings is emotional communication yes but is that a healthy one rather than uh, perhaps using the word pragmatic well, I believe, look, uh, you can use uh, emotion falsely in order to manipulate, um, but uh, if emotion comes from the heart and it, if, it, if it is based on high values and high ideals, that combined with emotion, that's very powerful. Yes. So we're, we're talking about it in terms of true passion uh, rather than compromise or or uh, bending the truth. Well, or... if it's emotion <clears throat> that is used falsely and, and not sincerely, but only to gain an outcome where you manipulate someone on the basis of your own greed or self-interest solely, um, that's not true emotion, is it? I mean, that's false emotion, but but it, but it's used in order to uh, achieve an outcome. I, I think I think you may suspect, and I should not go down this road because I don't mean to. But I'm putting this in context of where the news media is today, because I I think that that is what is happening in the news media, and that does skew uh, events today. It does skew the human position. It, it does so uh, confuse. The real issues out there. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I not only agree with you. I, I mean, I was there over twenty years ago in my own mind, recognizing, and then being a student of science of mind, recognizing that um, uh, the media. You know, uh, Marshall McLuhan said that the that the media is the message. Well, uh, I added in an essay that I wrote, the media is not only the message, but um, 
the the media is the instrument uh, for affecting consciousness. So um, how do how can we respond to higher callings in consciousness? Uh, we can do that in part by ourselves becoming the media, becoming the alternate uh, forms of the media. And, uh, and that, that really was my intent uh, from a motivational aspect uh, in wanting to launch a spiritual television channel, now having enrichment.com, which I know will develop further, and, uh, and in doing my own radio show on Enrichment Hour and you doing In Discussion, uh, which is a, a great, by the way, you know, it, uh, it, it is a great thing that you are doing, you know, because I, I do believe in the ripple effect, David. You know, uh, consciousness, was it Gandhi who said uh, something like, um, we're not going to change things overnight, and um, uh, the tyrants of the world are not going to go away overnight, but ultimately they will, and ultimately we will change. And he, and he understood that um, each, each activity, each action we take on behalf of the higher cause, the higher calling, has an effect. Maybe not uh, today, but ultimately it will have an effect. I see it happening already. You know, even with, as you put it, the um, the uh, manipulation of the media, the lower negative energies of some media, um, the uh, the urgency, which is based, by the way, totally on money and the greed factor, the urgency to feel that you need to present news as scintillation in order to capture an audience and in order to capture a higher advertising rates. Um, all of that exists, but there are people who, like Oprah Winfrey, who, who's very powerful, who, who is in a new, newer paradigm for sure. Um, people on PBS uh, who are in the newer paradigm. Uh, some uh, important correspondents and journalists who are there, or or at least one foot in and one foot on, out, <laughs> but but the, the, they are making it. So everything helps, you know. And I believe that it is ultimately going to change. But here's the the, the kicker. The kicker is we need to um, continue to move forward in our in our work, you know, to advance. Um, to advance uh, the callings of uh, higher energy, higher consciousness. We, we need to continue to do that. We need more people who are doing that. And this needs to be rewarded in some way, you know. Well, I, I clearly have the vision of the communication that you talk about. Communication leads to collaboration. I think solutions is probably an old word and overused, but communication, collaboration, but the most important thing in my vocabulary is being a listener. I think you have to be prepared to listen. Um, and I, th I see that all those, those vehicles are ones that you are striving for. Could I ask you, about our children's future. Would you agree in any way uh, to a statement that I make here that possibly suggests that we are most one, one of the most important generations? Uh, we're going through a huge uh, change mm -hmm. uh, from uh, an industrialized manufacturing uh, um, uh, infrastructure mm -hmm. to uh, technology-driven, and goodness only knows what else. Uh, what is it that we can tell our children that can make them feel comfortable and proud in what we are uh, attempting to do here for them? Well, you know, 
this is not complicated. This is very simple. Um, even though our tr- our children are, are really ha- have become masters of the uh, information age that we are in, and um, uh, uh, with the new technologies, they are very adept at it, and uh, the children of the future will be even more adept at technologies. It, we go back to the heart. I think it's about in the in the family setting. It's about instilling the basic values. Now, when I say the basic values. I want to make very clear, I am not talking about uh, theologies. Uh, I believe that theologies have, uh, in part, created a lot of separation and uh, judgment and uh, evaluation of uh, other peoples, peoples of other religions and so on. But I believe that it is about values, it is about um, reverence for life, instilling in them the idea that they are precious, that they are loved and lovable. These are very basic things that are ultimately of the most importance. And that other human beings, that all people of all races, religions, genders, and, and so on, are equal to them and are people of feeling and people of potential just as they are. And to acknowledge them, to really make them feel seen, this is extreme. I, I had a friend, uh, very my closest friend, actually. His name was Michael Wyman. He passed away suddenly uh, from an asthma attack. But he taught a workshop called The Power of Acknowledgement. David, it was one of the most wonderful, glorious, powerful um, uh, workshops I had ever been in. People do not feel acknowledged. People do not feel seen. People do not feel loved. Now, many do. But, but there are many, you'll be surprised, who do not feel that they can have their expression, who do not feel honored for whatever their mission and purpose in life is. I think we need to do that at, at the very earliest ages and instill that at the very earliest ages. Uh, and, uh, and, and, we, and, and from there, we will have a better world. Well, you would certainly agree with me, Mike, and that's one of my strategies in these programs to take people back to their childhood. That is, yes. It is probably one of the most profound times of our lives that it actually set up, right. set up the structure for our entire life. Right. And we, I could go for another hour or two just on that subject with you. Yes, and so for the children, would you agree with me that, that we are going to create a good future for them? Um, David, I hope so. I have the faith that um, we will. I'm an optimist by nature, but I think that we're at a precipice, and it has the potential to go either way. So it it, it requires for us to really um, use the power of our own intention and our own love to make sure that it happens the right way. Mike Schrager, uh, founder of Enrichment.com. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today, and I can already see that we're going to have to share another program one of these days. My pleasure, David. And to our listeners today, I hope you've enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.